Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview folks who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I am very excited on this wonderful Sunday night to have with me Sue Van Haddam. She is a math professor, blogger, mother, and now author and fundraiser. Welcome, Sue. Thank you. That sounds like so much. Yes, yes, it, it it sounds like a lot. I am really excited to be doing this interview because you and I have sort of, you know, we've exchanged emails over the last year or so. You're aware of my blog. I'm aware of your blog. And I knew you were writing a book and I asked you if I could interview you about it. And you said, hold on. And now here it is a year later. And you said, hey, I'm getting close. My book is coming out in the fall and I'm doing a fundraiser for it. And I said, great, let's do an interview. So here we are. Yeah. And actually, you know, we've been crossing paths for maybe five or six years because I've been working on this book for five and a half years. And I think I remember seeing your posts. Um, you used to do more collections of links in your posts, I think, for a very long time. Am I right? I have been blogging for about seven years six or seven years. And yeah, I used to do more articles. I used to do more, you know, more compilation of links and that sort of thing. The last couple of years I've been doing pretty much almost a hundred percent of these podcasts. And it all started because folks, publishers would send me copies of their books and say, would you write a review for me on your blog? And I realized I really don't like writing book reviews, but I love talking to people about what gets them excited enough about books, about math to write books. So I decided to do that instead. And now I get, um, when I get cool books, I interview authors. So here you are. Yes. And actually I'm not the author of the book. So the book is called playing with math stories from math circles, homeschoolers and passionate teachers. And I lovingly compiled the pieces in it and edited them. Um, We have 30 authors, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, depending on which way you count. Um, Besides the chapters that are stories, after each of those chapters, there's either a puzzle, game, or activity. And so one of the people, I don't know whether I should count or not, is Denise Gaskins, who you've probably interviewed because of her wonderful blog, Let's Play Math. And she writes stories about a fictional character, Alexandria Jones, um, who goes with her father, the archaeologist, on adventures. And there's always math involved in the stories. So that's the activity, actually, after one of the regular chapters. So I don't know. Does she count? Does she not? Um, (laughs) But so I was more of an editor on this book, though I did author maybe five or six chapters in it. Okay, I appreciate the the correction. I actually knew and then forgot that that there are chapters written by different people. So yes, I will I will make sure to get it right when I write the little blog article that goes with the with the, with the podcast. So let me start since this whole podcast series is about what is it that gets people excited about math to do something cool and you know try to get more of it into the world. What excites you about math to write a book and now to crowdsource or to compile a book and to crowdsource it? So I think that's two questions. What gets me excited by math and what got me writing the book? Um, So I'm going to back up and just tell the story uh, the way I usually tell it. I was looking online for resources because I wanted I'm a college teacher and I wanted to help out at my son's free school, free with an F, an alternative school. The kids got to play most of the time, but they did a, um, you know, like 45-minute math class, 45-minute reading class each day, and 
got to play the rest of the time. So I was going to help out with the math, but I hadn't taught young kids for many years. So, and I certainly hadn't taught in that environment. So I was looking online and I was finding so much good writing, very exciting stuff. Uh, there's a forum for homeschoolers run by Julie Brennan called Living Math Forums. Got over 5,000 members now. Fabulous discussions going on. And she was writing great stuff. And I thought, it's going to just disappear in the vastness of the Internet. I didn't want it to disappear. And so between seeing her stuff, Maria Drushkova's stuff, Pam Sarushian's stuff, and some other things I was experiencing, I wanted to put it all together in a book. That's the book end of it. What has recently gotten truly excited by math also came through that same pathway uh, on Living Math Forum. I heard about a book called Out of the Labyrinth, Setting Mathematics Free by Robert Nellen Kaplan about math circles. I had heard of math circles, and I think I had visited the Berkeley Math Circle once. And there's a few different styles of math circles. The Berkeley Math Circle is very much competitive. It's about the top students who are going to go on to math competitions. And maybe I hadn't visited it. Maybe I had just read about it, but it sounded over my head. And, you know, this is for high school students and it sounded over my head. So their book comes from an entirely different direction. Math circles as communities of people learning math together in a very non-pressured atmosphere. No grades, no homework, no credit. Uh, It just sounded fun. And I contacted them and said, I really want to learn more. And the math circles they hold in Boston are once a week. I needed something more intensive because I don't live in Boston. I live in California. And it turned out, amazingly, I contacted them in the spring. And there was their first ever teacher training math math circle teacher training institute at Notre Dame. And I never realized that Notre Dame is about two hours away from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where my parents live. And so they watched my son and I went to play with math for a week. Uh, I made a very good friend and Ellen and I um, were both moms away from our young kids and we called it the math spa. We, it was amazing. (laughs) We did math from morning till night. Ellen and I ran off to go swimming a couple times, most mornings maybe. And I never got tired of it. I didn't feel like anybody was telling me I had to do it. We just were so eager to keep playing with it. It was amazing. I felt like I had found my tribe. Uh, That's a term Maria Dushkova likes to use. But I really Mm -hmm. felt at home with these other people. It wasn't about getting the right answer. I didn't have to worry if I didn't understand something. We just were playing around with these hard math problems. and. The problem from the first day was very interesting how it came about because um, can you do this thing or not? Let's see, what was it? Fill a rectangle with squares where each square is a different size. No two squares are the same size. And I felt pretty sure when we started talking about it that it couldn't be done. And the question up for discussion was, can you do it or not? And when I thought it couldn't be done, I thought, well, that's kind of boring to prove something can't be done. So I lost interest a little bit and other people were working so hard on it. And the drawings that people were doing were kind of hard to do. And so we tried to use technology to help us. Um, I don't think GeoGebra was out yet or not uh, widely known, maybe, but I had Geometry Sketchpad on my laptop and I pulled it out and we put together a drawing to help us think about the problem. And the next day, Uh, the leaders called two people up front to show us their progress. And there was one group who had proved that you can't do it. And one group that had shown that you can. (laughs) I I knew, I knew that whoever went first was going to be wrong. And so when the people who showed that you can't do it went up first, I um, was looking for a mistake and found one. Um, But the people who figured out how to do it had stayed up late into the night because they trusted that they could do it. And I was so inspired by how hard they worked that I started working harder at other problems that were proposed during the week. The community made so much difference to me. 
So that really made, turned me into more of a mathematician myself, um, gave me the courage to struggle harder with math problems that I had never solved before. And eventually I started exploring math problems completely on my own. Um, I'm 58 years old, so I did my, you know, my student days in math are long, long ago. I've been teaching for 25 years. And I teach math, but I wasn't really doing any math where I had to solve a new problem myself for, for a long time. And in the past five years, I have been doing that. And it's been a wonderful change in my life. Definitely reinvigorated my teaching. That, you know, that is a really cool story because usually, you know, people, you know, I, 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 I turned 50 in December and usually I would think that the people in our decade, um, if we were excited by math, that we would have been excited by math, you know, from our, our teens or, or our preteens. It's, it's actually pretty cool that you have been a math professor for all this time and then all of a sudden, you get this awakening and go, Oh my God, all this math that I've been doing. It's like, there's, there's really cool stuff going on with math. Yeah. So I've always been excited by math to a certain extent, but classroom math is not the whole picture. And when you take a math class, you know that the answers are in the back of the book. And when you get stuck, you can ask the teacher and I, there were moments when I was, I did my undergraduate work at University of Michigan and there were times I got really stuck and I got myself unstuck sometimes. Um, and that's a wonderful feeling, but, um, U of M was kind of too hard. And I, uh, I left there thinking I didn't like math that much. And then I wanted to teach community college. I started teaching before I got my master's as a part-timer. And fell in love with teaching community college. And so I got my master's at Eastern Michigan University, which doesn't have the prestige, but the teaching was wonderful. It was so much better for me. I fell back in love with math, but it still was more sort of in set containers in the classroom. Does that make sense? Kind of in set containers. What do you mean by that? Um, well, you know, you had the course and you're doing the problems in the course and the answers are in the book and the teacher helps you when you're stuck. And um, you so, you're, you're, OK, so, you're, you're doing math inside the box. <laughs> yeah, it's all there already. And what we did at the math circle, it's true that the people leading the circle sort of knew where it would head, but it didn't feel the same. It felt outside the box. It felt more like, it felt more exploratory. And so the second, I think the second year, one of the problems we looked at, because I have gone back over and over to their Math Circle Institute at Notre Dame and will go again this summer. It's a wonderful experience. I highly recommend it. Um, But so I think it was the second year we dealt with Pythagorean triples. And that was in the summer. And I have a terrible memory, which I tell students is good because math is not about memorizing. It's about making connections. So over Christmas break in between semesters, when I was relaxed, I thought, oh, I'll play with that. I really liked the Pythagorean triples problem. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about it and I got stuck and I found a solution and I played around. And it turned out that what I did was entirely different than what we had done in the math circle. I couldn't remember what we had done. And there's sort of a conventional way for approaching Pythagorean triples. And my analysis of them, I feel, is very complete and interesting. And it doesn't take the same approach. So it's not that I invented something new, because what I did is out there already. But I invented something that I hadn't seen before. I made it up myself even though it's already been made up before. Right. So that Mm -hmm. was very exciting. Um, Was it before or after I went to the math circle? I solved a problem. Yeah, it was probably after I went to the math. Definitely. After the math circle Institute, I started holding what I called math salons at my house. Hmm. Um, My blog is called math mama writes uh, a blog spot blog, but you can find math mama writes on Google. And um, one of the, 
favorite items on the right-hand side is Richmond Math Salon. There's a video of my math salons at my house. And at one of the first ones, there was a lot of people with kids, but there were a few adults that came separately from the kids. And I posed a problem for them to look at that I didn't actually know the answer to. And uh, we worked on it after all the other people left. And I kept working on it after those two people left. And I solved it. Uh, I had seen the answer a few years ago by, you know, Googling it, but I had forgotten. And I solved it. And I wrote a paper on my thinking process. How do you solve a math problem? called on, on Doing Mathematics. It's in the Journal of Humanistic Mathematics. So that was a first for me to write a paper about math. It was very exciting to solve that problem and to write about my thinking process. So all that stuff really, I think, came out of the Math Circle Institute for me. Wow, that, that is pretty cool. So do you remember what that Pythagorean triple problem was? Well, Anybody who teaches math knows three, four, five, and most people who've taken a math class know that a right triangle with the sides three and four has a hypotenuse of five. Mm -hmm. Two legs, you square them and you add them and you get the hypotenuse. And as a teacher using that in algebra classes, I would try to come up with other ones with whole number sides. And I knew there was five, 12, 13. And the next one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know a whole lot of other ones, but you start figuring out other ones and you start looking for patterns. So I've run math circles with this. And to me, the question is just what patterns are there? And so you begin to wonder, well, is the hypotenuse always an odd number? And there's three, four, five, and there's five, 12, 13, and there's seven, let's see, seven, um, 24, 25. Is it? Okay. Yes. And so you begin to wonder, not only is the hypotenuse always odd, but is the longer leg always one less than the hypotenuse? But then there's 8, 15, 17. So I guess not. And um, you start exploring the patterns. And so that's how I run the math circles on Pythagorean triples. What patterns are there? That's Let's- great. Yeah. I I have had some experience with math circles also, we haven't played with Pythagorean triples, but um, we've certainly done lots of explorations, which is what you're talking about. It's yeah. and even even if you're discovering something that the world has already discovered, it's you still get to have that aha, joyful experience of discovery. Absolutely. So that's a very algebra-intensive math circle, and I do another math circle with uh, using the game of Spot It. Um, my son doesn't like doing math stuff with me. He doesn't like that I know so much more than him. And so he likes the game of spot it. He can beat me because it's an observation game. Who sees first the one picture that matches between the center card and your own card? Any two cards in the deck, each card has eight little pictures on it. Any two cards in the deck at all will have one picture out of the eight matching which means that I have a card, you have a card, there's a center card. We're each looking on our own card in the center card trying to find the matching picture to spot it. And once you spot it, you say the the picture that you spotted and you take the card off the center pile, put it on top of your cards, and then keep going. And so you're trying to beat the other person to spot it first. So it's a quick game. It's fun. It's not a mathematical game. But The more I played it with my son, I kept wondering, well, how did they build those cards? Every single card has to have exactly one match with every other card in the deck. Mm. That's a lot of combinations to think about. You can't have two cards that have no matches. You can't have two cards that have two or three matches. Every pair. So if you've got 30 cards in your deck, and the deck is uh, 55 cards, I think, each of the 55 cards has to have one match with each of the other 54. So that's 55 times 54 divided by two. That's an awful lot of, you know, that's thousands, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of potential matches you have to check for. And so I started thinking about how, how did they do it? I had no idea to start with how they did it. Um, I thought about it and did nothing about it for over half a year, maybe most of a year. 
I visited a friend the next Christmas um, after the Pythagorean Christmas and mentioned it to her. And she said, well, let's try to figure it out. And she's not a mathematician. And we sat there and it was great. We sat there drawing pictures of pretend cards and thinking about it. And we came up with some ideas and I spent, oh, I have no idea, probably 40 hours on this problem at least. And when I solved it, I was like, well, why do they have 55 cards in the deck? It seems to me that they should have a few more cards. And I wrote to them and they said, well, don't tell. It's our secret. Now I'm telling, uh-oh, but I won't tell the secret. Um, but 55 is not how many cards you really ought to have, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how many of the full deck you use. So they used a few less than what a full deck could be. Um, and uh, so that helped me know I was right. But also before I talked to them, I learned some Python so that I could program my solution and see if I was right to double check whether every card in the deck had exactly one match with every other card. And my solution was right. It was very fun to do some computer programming. I used to long ago computer program and I haven't done much of it recently. So that was fun too. So there's something very interesting going on in this conversation. And I wanted to, it's, it's obvious to you and to me, and it may not be obvious to all of our listeners. So I'm going to ask you a question that's going to make it obvious and uh -huh. I, I got the inspiration from for this question by looking at the draft copy of the book that you sent me and my uh -huh. question is what is mathematics because what we're talking about sounds really different probably than what you've been teaching to your students and you know very different from you know formulas and plugging in numbers and following recipes and drill and kill and all of that. What, yeah. what do you think is math? So, so yeah. So even when you are following recipes, you can do some cool stuff. Um, so, you know, when you're finding the slope of a line, it tells you the rate of change. It tells you how fast something is changing and calculus is for how fast things are changing that change at a changing rate. Whew. Um, Right. So there's lots of cool stuff you can do within that box, but it's it limits your view of what math is. And to me, math is about making connections, um, seeing patterns, proving. Is the pattern that I see really, truly there? Is it going to be in this situation however I change the situation? So the problem that took me 20 or 30 years to solve that I uh, worked on with that math circle I taught you, told you about first was the one where you have a circle. If you put two points on the circle and connect them, puts two regions. If you put a third point and connect all three points, you have four regions in your circle. And if you put a fourth point and connect them all, you now have eight regions. So it looks like it's doubling every time. And five points does give you 16. But try it with six points and right, right. Mm -hmm. you will find that the doubling pattern doesn't stay. And so what is the pattern? There is a pattern and it's a pattern that you can prove will keep working no matter how many points you put on your circle. If you connect them all, the doubling pattern, there's no reason for it to double. It turns out. So that's a great problem for helping people understand that it's not just find any pattern because sometimes there more than one pattern goes with a sequence of numbers that you see in a situation. And so you have to make the connection between the situation and the pattern that you've seen. And you have to have a proof that this pattern makes sense with this situation. Okay. Yes. In fact, I have, I have seen that problem before and that's a particularly challenging problem because once you're at six points, it's difficult to visualize yes. or, to, or to draw the circle and to count regions. So it is, it's a particularly challenging pattern and it is deceptive because you're going, Oh gee, it just doubles. It's just two to the end. And, right. and it's not. It's not. And as I worked through the problem, so I saw the solution once kind of forgot it, but it was sitting there in my subconscious for sure. But as I 
brought that back and felt like I was discovering the answer myself, I, I got a visual that was really helpful. And I don't know, I don't want in this podcast to give people the whole solution to any of the problems I'm bringing up. I want to intrigue uh, your listeners. Yes, this so is great. I got a visual. I don't think it's too much. Just if you took two of the lines where they cross and pick them up, you know that game of Cat's Cradle that kids play? Maybe girls do it more than boys. I'm not sure with the string around yes. your fingers. Yep. Do boys do that game too? I don't know. I, I, I did it once upon a time, yeah. Yeah, okay. So um, you, you grab at the intersection of two of the pieces of string, right? And that image of grabbing the two strings and lifting them up, was very helpful to me as I was thinking about this problem. So I don't think that's too much of a hint, but um, it helped me think about it. And, and so the math, so we said patterns and I said proving, um, but there's also how do you formulate a problem? What new notations do you use? What images help you analyze a problem to get to the underlying structure? Right. So, you know, this is very interesting because this is this is not just left brain you know, plug stuff into the machinery. This is also right brain intuition, inspiration, okay. ideas, creative thinking. In some cases, you're collaborating with with other folks, and there's 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 magic in that. Yep. And and I think this conversation is great because it's leading into the the question of so so what is this book about? And I and I would say before I even let you answer the question, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my answer. And this book is about everything that you have said up to now. And in fact, looking at the table of contents of the book, you have um, chapters with with names like the art of inquiry and rejoicing in confusion and parents and kids together, um, bionic algebra adventures, you know, seized by a good idea, a prison math circle. You've got all kinds of intriguing, teasing in a good way, chapter titles that really put some joy and heart into this exploration stuff. So now that I've given my answer about the book that you compiled, why don't you give me your answer? Okay. Um, I just have to say that you skipped, I didn't have the book in front of me. It's so funny. I have, I have with my bad memory, I still have the table of contents memorized. You skipped the um, noticing and fairness, a mindful math circle. That was the last chapter that went in. And I wanted to get it in, even though I felt like we were pretty full because it had such a different angle on things. So one of the things I was looking for besides the playfulness was that we get chapters that each bring a different perspective. And Rody Steinig brings the perspective of mindfulness to the math circles she runs with children. And it is so beautiful. I think that one of the bloggers, I'm sure you know, um, Elizabeth. Oh, Elizabeth, I am sorry if I mess up your last name. Is it Statmore? Elizabeth Statmore, Cheese Monkey. Um, I, I don't know her. Okay. Uh, I will look forward to the day you interview her because she writes a fabulous blog. And it often has the, that sort of perspective on mindfulness and um, deep consciousness, a kind of Buddhist perspective. So that's oh, a really hmm. different chapter, um, but there's plenty of math in it. And so each chapter comes at the math from a different perspective. So there's about 10 chapters in the math circle section. The prison math circle is by Bob and Ellen Kaplan, the people who run the institute I told you about. In the homeschooler section, we have a chapter by somebody who does not like math, who is not comfortable with math, called The Math Haters Come Around. <laughs> and her daughter... Um, I think she would describe her daughter as very dyslexic and having a very nonlinear approach to things. And she was looking for something that might be helpful. They're unschoolers. So she wasn't worried about it. She was letting life give them math lessons through cooking and shopping and 
things like that. But I think she felt like, you know, it'd be nice if we had something more. And she, she stumbled upon a book about Vedic math from India. And for her, it did wonders. And Vedic math doesn't move me much, but it was great for her. And her writing style is just delightful. Um, I think you'll love her chapter. So um, it's, it's very conversational. She describes the back and forth between her and her kids. And she describes the change and the first time she ever thought about math just because she wanted to. Laying awake, trying to think about uh, multiples of nine. <laughs> because she was thinking about what patterns that would draw if you drew that into a, what they call a nine-point circle. And so combining the math with drawing was really powerful for them. So um, the homeschoolers are very different kinds of homeschoolers. Some of them are people with more of a program, more decision that the kids are going to work at this, this, and this each day. And some of them are unschoolers, and some of them are in between. So that section has lots of different flavors around sort of what style of homeschooling happens. And then the bringing our passion into the classroom, the passionate teacher section is organized kind of by age. So was the math circle section. Um, so there's a Montessori teacher talking about a child who wanted to figure out some big number times 10 using something they call the Montessori folks call the stamp game. And he builds that big number 10 times. So he, 8,967, let's say. So he does eight of the thousand stamps and nine of the hundred stamps, 8,967, six of the 10 stamps, seven of the one stamps. And then he does it over and over. And unfortunately, he didn't finish by the end of the day. And she assured him she would leave his work out. And he went home and told his dad what he was doing. And his dad said, Oh, multiplying by 10, you just add a zero. And on her blog, she was pretty upset with the dad. And I didn't know her yet. I found this and I was like, oh my God, this is such a great story. And I asked her, you know, is it okay? Can I change the tone a little bit? Here's how I would want to put it. Um, just that it's so sad because dad took away, without really understanding it, the kid's opportunity to play with it. He comes, the little kid comes in the next day. This is like a five-year-old. And says, oh, my dad says, this is all you have to do. So he wasn't interested in finishing the problem. And her life's work is to help kids engage with all sorts of problem solving, not just mathematics, of course, um, in the Montessori preschool she worked at. So she was very disappointed that he lost that opportunity to, to learn on his own. Because after he put out the 10 copies, he would be exchanging, right? 10 ones for a 10 over and over and 10 tens for a hundred over and over. And eventually he'd have, wow, it's, it's kind of looks like the same number, but with the place values shifted. Um, but instead his dad just told him, oh, you just add a zero. So her chapter is amazing, very powerful. You know, and 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 it would be interesting to see if the dad could actually explain or or even understand why is it that in our base ten system that to multiply by ten is adding a zero. I mean, there there's more going on than okay, dad gave away the answer. Right. It shows us that the way we usually do math classes is about learning procedures that we don't necessarily really understand. I've been teaching for over 10 years when I suddenly realized I keep using this Pythagorean theorem with my students and have I proved it? Do I know why it's true? And I tried to figure it out, got stuck, and this was before the internet, so I had to find a geometry book and look it up. And I was like, oh, that's a great, I found a proof that was very, um, very visually simple. Um, and that's the one I've used with my students. And nowadays with the internet, proofs like that you can animate them and it's even nicer. Um, so you can get a feel for it. But all those years, I just took that as accepted instead of thinking about, well, why is it true? How do I know it's true? Oh, yeah. There, there are a lot of things that, that we take for granted that are not particularly obvious uh, you know, in the spirit of throwing out problems for people to think about. 
um, there are all of these divisibility right. rules, and rather than just looking them up and right. in, you know to, to see what the trick is, see if you can derive them, and if you, and and whether you can derive them or not, see if you can explain them. And, and a fun one is you know th this um, casting out nines or digital root right. thing, and if the sum of the digits of a number is divisible by nine, then the number is divisible by nine. And and the question is why? And there's some nice algebra that, that you can chew on. Right. Exactly. That, and, and figure this out. Yeah. Uh, now, now, I guess I'm giving, you know, I gave away a little something. It, it, yes, if I were to go back one step, I could say, what can you tell about divisibility by nine by adding up the digits of nine? But but anyway, okay, so I gave away a little piece, and, but people can oh, see no. if, if, um, they, if they can do the algebra and then there is also the piece of you know we're in a base 10 system and we're talking about casting out nines you know is there something that that you can explore with other base systems and that's not something that we do very much with in no. in our, in our education system because oh aren't we lucky we have 10 fingers because we got both nine and three out of that and if we had eight fingers we would probably do decimal, um, I mean, not decimal, binary operations more easily, but we would only get to cast out sevens. We wouldn't get an extra freebie if we were an eight-fingered species. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of crazy connections you can make. So the passionate teacher section goes from that preschool chapter up through high school. Um, so here I teach college and almost nothing in this book is at all college level. Um, the closest I came was that I wanted to mention calculus when I was explaining the catapult project and why uh, we can model gravity by using um, parabolas, using functions that are an, have an X squared term in them or a T squared if you're talking about time. Um, and so explaining how math describes gravity, I really wanted to talk about calculus, and I really felt like it was important not to, to continue to make this book accessible to people who aren't particularly comfortable with math. So my audience is parents of kids of all ages, elementary teachers, and then math enthusiasts like you and me, people who just want to eat up every new way to think about mathematical ideas and how to share them. Um, but I feel like it's really important for parents to get over their fears so that they can help their kids have a better experience of math. And the same for elementary teachers. Yep. Yep. I a thousand percent agree. Um, one quick point I wanted to make is you, you were talking about the, you know, the, the Vedic mathematics system mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and the person who, who got excited by that. I did a podcast interview fairly recently with David Raymer, I believe is his name, the author of a new book called Count Like an Egyptian. Oh, I've heard of that. I haven't gotten it yet. It, it, um, I will I, tell Tiff about him and that book, but what is, how does that relate to the Vedic? Well, it, it relates to the Vedic in, well, it doesn't, but what it is, is it's a different way of doing arithmetic, just like Vedic math yes. has all of these very interesting and very different algorithms for doing arithmetic. Um, the Egyptians used a system that's in, I, I would say, binary in some ways. Right, right, yeah. And so they, um, so when I interviewed David, and, and you, you, you may want to listen to the podcast or or, or get your friend to listen to the podcast, but what was fascinating to me what was in the book was this idea that you can take a kid who is young enough that they haven't memorized the multiplication table, but yet you can teach them in about five minutes how to multiply numbers by doubling and adding numbers, which is what computers do with their binary arithmetic. Right. That's that's so cool, isn't it? it? And it's remarkably powerful because if a kid is grounded enough in arithmetic, they can multiply numbers together. You know, you, you know. Even and, if they don't know their times tables. Even if they don't know their times tables. That's right. 
I heard of some teacher who had, you know, the low class and all his students were, didn't know their times tables. And this was maybe high school level. And he decided to do something different. I don't remember where I saw this. I have not found it when I've looked again. Um, he showed them how to convert back and forth, maybe with base five, because that would be the easiest to convert back and forth. And then your multiplication tables in base five are so simple. And so they could do their multiplications by converting to base five, multiplying, converting back to base 10. And they hmm. did. The low students did that, which sounds much harder. I'm sure they learned lots more in his class than they had ever learned in a math class before, and they could multiply. So you can imagine somebody multiplying, uh, I don't know, in a store or something that way, because that's, that's what worked for them <laughs> and other people being totally mystified. Hmm. Okay. Yep. So l- let me ask you another question. So this book that you have compiled, mm-hmm. it's not your traditional math book because it's 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 a community effort really to to put the book together because you compiled chapters from a number of people and you are also looking to sell the book in a non-traditional way at least initially i know you have absolutely yeah so yeah tell uh, us about that my publisher is delta stream media the founder is maria drushkova and her vision is I like to say community-supported publishing, just like community-supported agriculture. That's great. Um, farmers have real problems when they have to pay up front and run all the risks, and then at the end of the season, maybe they've grown too much and nobody needs as much of what they've grown or wants it anyway. Um, but with community-supported agriculture, the members help. Um, they share the risk. Uh, they agree ahead of time to buy the produce that the farmer grows. And so it works out a lot better when you have a long-term endeavor like that to share the risks and to share the costs up front. So with publishing, um, you know, places like Lulu have this print-on-demand feature where you can print one copy, but that's more more costly. Um, it works better if you can print do a large print run. But it's nice to know, well, how large? So as we do the crowdfunding campaign, we find out just how much demand is there for this book. And it's looking good. We're already, I don't know, something like 37% of the way to our goal on day three out of 30 days. So I'm hoping we go way over our goal because then we'll do a bigger print run. And I want to see this book in lots of people's hands. Um, So it gives us the production costs ahead of time, but it also tells us how many copies to print. And it's also a way of letting people know about the book because we're um, pouring a lot of energy into letting everybody know all at once about the book over this next few weeks and people are finding out. And so this is our publicity campaign too. So it, it is a very different model from conventional publishing and we'll see how well it works over time. Yes, I'm, I am very intrigued by the model. I threw in my $25 to get a copy, a printed copy of your book when it's published. I believe it will be published in the fall, Correct. right? Yeah. So. And so you'll be happy you did. It's so, I'm so excited about getting that really nice copy in my hands. I've been going to a, a nice cheap copy place in Berkeley uh, every few months to get a copy of my manuscript. Um, and the copies cost me $12. And they'd cost a lot more elsewhere. Um, but they're not as pretty as a book. And it's eight and a half by 11. The book will be a little smaller. So this manuscript looks like a workbook. And the book won't look like that. It'll be much nicer. Beautiful cover. And the, you know, the typeface will be nicer. It's very exciting to think about this actually in print. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to having the physical object in my hands. Well, and I, I yeah, think you'll love so it. So am I. And, and I think what, so folks in the U S they can, they can contribute at different levels. And the number I'm remembering is the, the, the $25, so within, $25 within the U S one copy. And if you're outside the U S it's 35 
and $50 in the U.S. gets you two copies. And if you're outside the U.S., it's 60 because of the higher postage. And then there are some interesting rewards for higher contributions. Um, the highest level of contribution we put was for $5,000 and above. We'll, Maria and I will come to your town and help you run a math festival or a math party or a math circle or something along those lines. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that, that, that <laughs> is quite a prize. Now, yeah. now, I mean, I love Maria. I actually have gotten to meet her in person twice, even though I'm in New Mexico and she is in North Carolina. We met at a blog, a science bloggers uh, convention in North Carolina in the Raleigh-Durham area yeah. oh, some years ago. And then I got her to come to a conference that I was involved with um, when I worked briefly for Conrad Wolfram um, at Wolfram Research, the Mathematica folks. Mm -hmm. And we had a conference in London on computer-based math. And Maria, I, I got her to come out there. And so we, we got to visit again. But, but Maria is one of my very favorite person. She did a, a crowdsource book, Mobius Noodles. Right, right about yeah. teaching math to really young kids, three, four, five-year-old kids, and how do you get yeah, them older, thinking? Younger, yes. Even younger than three, maybe, and definitely also older than five. Yes, I love Mobius Noodles. I have a copy of it sitting right in front of me. <laughs> I am, Yep, and I have a copy because I supported her on, on that. Um, so this is really awesome. This, yep. I... Yes, the fact that you are more than a third of the way there in in just a few days. Um, and I'm also glad that, that this is not a, a Kickstarter campaign, because I think Kickstarter puts the pressure on you that if you don't get a commitment for all of the funds, then you don't get anything. Right. And our site is incited that. Oh, my goodness. I'm not going to remember if it's .org or .com. Um, I'll switch over screens while I'm talking. It's spelled I-N-C-I-T-E-D, incited, and it's .org. So incited.org is our crowdfunding platform, and they let you choose. You can choose to have the all or nothing option, because I think for some projects that's important, right? We can't do it if we don't get enough funds. So therefore we don't want you to give us your money if we don't get enough funds. So on Incited, you get to choose which way to do it. And we chose to take the money, whether we get enough or not. Partly I was sure we would get enough, but also we'll find other ways to get the money if we didn't get enough. Um, but I, I just don't think that's an issue. But, um, you know, if our goal is $7,500, if we came in at 7000 maybe we'd do a shorter print run than we think we ought to. So, um, yeah, we took the, we'll take the money no matter what, and we'll make good use of it, and we'll make sure this book comes out and gets in people's hands. But different kind of projects call for different things. So Kickstarter is probably great for some projects, and it's especially great when you want a big audience that doesn't know you yet because people wander around on Kickstarter probably more than they wander around on our site, which is less well-known, but we're doing great networking, um, making sure lots of different people when you have 30 authors and 20 other people. So there's lots of people who worked on the puzzles, games, and activities. There's um, a number of editors and artists involved also. So we have really 50 people involved with the book. So if each of them goes out and gets a few people, friends and family even, interested in getting a copy of the book, we've already got a few hundred right there. Right. So, and if, if my arithmetic is correct, I think if each of those 50 people gets a half dozen people to buy one copy of the book, my arithmetic may be off. I'm doing this off the top of my head, but but something like that. It it doesn't it doesn't take huge numbers um to right to push you over the top and right. and of, and of course in the next couple of days I will have an article and this audio on my blog. This also goes out to iTunes. Right. And people can look on my blog to see some reviews of the book. So 
Laura Grace Weldon is a homeschooler who thinks the book is great. There's a review on my blog right now by um, a woman who I think was a high school teacher. I'm not sure who thinks the book is great. And I say they think the book is great, but they go into great detail about what's great about it. Um, the different perspectives that you see in the book is something lots of people have talked about being wonderful. The fact that it's storytelling that it's not at all like a textbook. It makes it very approachable if you're not comfortable with math. That's a real difference between this book and most books about math. The fact that there is some math in it to play with. The fact that there's lots of resources to turn to. So it's it's a great collection. I, when I was first starting it, I was thinking, do you know, do you remember from long ago, the Whole Earth Catalog? Oh, Yes, it was the well, right? Well, that's what it turned into in the age of computers. But before that, it was a big, thick, big book with lots of resources, fascinating book to just leaf through. And I wanted this to be the whole earth catalog of playing with math, of, of math because you want to. I love that. That's a great tagline, math because you want to. Yeah. That That is... That is really cool. So let's see. So I want to ask you a couple more questions because we are winding down here on, on time. But I notice that looking through the list of of authors of the chapters, you have a fair number of of women who are Yes, absolutely um, who are contributors. I'm always excited not only do I have a fair number, I was worried that I didn't have enough men for some kind of gender balance. Oh, um, that's that, that's funny because, you know, early on when I started doing these podcasts, somebody made the comment. It's like, hey, how come you're, you know, you're mostly interviewing men and there was never any intention behind that. It's like, as I wasn't finding the women and now I have been finding more women. I'm delighted to be talking to you and you have given me just through the author's of these chapters, you've given me some women to contact, and I may ask you for some introductions. I absolutely would love to do that, and I mentioned earlier in the hour Elizabeth. So I want—I definitely want to introduce you and Elizabeth because I think I want to hear you interview her. Well, good. So yes, so please make that introduction without knowing anything more about her than what little you've told me. I would love to interview her. Yeah. So let me just say something about that. We talked about that before the interview. I think women are trained to be polite. Men are trained to put themselves forward, um, to make sure they get where they need to go. And the, the different social training women and men get means that men have a bigger voice in the world. Men often pay attention to other men's voices more than they pay attention to women's voices. I just read an article about... Um, in a meeting, a woman will put forth an idea. Nobody really pays attention. A man will put forth the exact same idea and people will say, wow, what a great idea. Now that has never happened to me. I would say, I'm glad you like my idea after hearing it from Tom. But it does happen to a lot of women. I think I have a big enough mouth. It doesn't happen to me. But, um, and I think somehow, I ended up walking through the world somewhere in between the way most women are and the way most men are. I think I've gotten in trouble a lot because I'm not polite enough sometimes. And, um, you know, is that because I don't know my place? Who knows? But um, I think every woman should try to learn how assertive men can be and every man should try to learn how polite women have learned to be. We should try to learn each other's socialization um, while we're trying to make the world a better place. But in the meantime, men get listened to a lot more, and that's a shame. So, yeah, there are some men's voices in the here. And it's interesting because um, in the homeschooler section, the only men are the uh, people writing puzzles. So Jack Webster has a fabulous puzzle. The hardest puzzle in the book is the one by Jack Webster, self-referential number square. It's wonderful. Um, and mm -hmm. the math circles, there's 
just a few chapters by men. And then there's more chapters by men in the, um, the, the teacher section. Um, but yeah, it sort of depends on your context, right? It, among homeschoolers, there's plenty of wonderful women. Have you interviewed Julie Brennan or Denise Gaskins yet? I have not. Nope. So they're both homeschoolers who uh, work with math a lot. And I think they have a lot of very interesting things to say. Pam Sarushian, but they're, they're all authors in the book, so I don't have to list them. Okay. Um, this is great. I'd like to tell you about an upcoming project, an exciting thing that happened to me just today, if there's time. Yes, um, go, go ahead. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, Malky Rosenfeld, and she and I are friended on Facebook. She's one of the authors in the book. She has two chapters in the book. I, I, I don't know her, but go on. Ah, okay. Well, there's another one you're going to love interviewing. Okay. She mentioned this morning, oh, my uh, public library in my town has such a great summer reading program. My daughter loves it. And she and I are making our own summer math program. And I think that libraries should have summer math programs like what we're making up now. And I said, oh, my goodness, what a great idea. Keep me up to date. And she and I started brainstorming what, we, what it would look like. And I said, okay, first you need a name, then you need a website, then you need to talk to librarians. And she went to Twitter and said, okay, we need a name, go. And people asked questions and people gave ideas. And we came up with Summer Math Smash. And Oh, fun. Yeah. And so then I, she built a website today. This started this morning. And I called up GoDaddy and uh, bought uh, summermathsmash.org and summermathsmash.com. So, so we won't have some commercial company trying to um, you know, take advantage of the nonprofit program we have in mind, helping libraries start programs just like their summer reading programs, but with fun math activities in mind. So we've got stars in our eyes for our next project. We haven't even finished this one. Um, but it sounds pretty exciting and we don't have to start today, but we just poured ourselves into it because it was such an exciting idea Malky had. So that's, you'll be seeing that over the next couple of years. That is really exciting. I, I just went and tried to get the domain. So I guess it's not up yet, even though you've registered it. Oh, no. If you do .org, it should be. Summermathsmash.org. Oh, oh I, I did Splash. Oh, which <laughs> kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But we called it Summer Math Smash. Uh, poetry Slams and Math Smash. Okay. All right. So it is... SummerMathSmash.org. I will put a link to it. Although when I go there, I get a I get a white page. Oh, really? Because, oh, well, then you're still typing something different than what I type. I think because what I did was I linked that up to what she made on Weebly. Um, so I'm going to spell it out. S U M M. The dot com works. No, the dot com we don't want. Um, <laughs> okay. The dot org. Okay. The dot com just goes to a, a GoDaddy page, right? Oh, no. Nope. That is one that goes. Okay. Nope. And the, the dot com goes to Summer Math Smash. Okay. So I will put a link to that. Yeah. I'll fix it so the dot org goes there, too. Both yeah. of those are going to go to the page that Malky already built today. All right. So, okay. This is this is very cool. So I will spend some time looking this at it. I will link infancy. We don't even have a mechanism there on the page for you to contact us yet. Maybe, maybe we'll put one, but it's up to Malky. And um, so don't be disappointed if you don't see anything exciting there. Now you have to go back in a year or in six months. Okay. And then All right. we'll have exciting content, but it's, I just love the process that Facebook and then Twitter and then Facebook and then email and then website. It's been very exciting. So, so that that is very cool because once again you're doing community, you're doing you know people coming together to to change the world. What what more could we want? That's what our hope is. Absolutely. And and you have answered my last question, which was, is there a next project? So this is this is your next big project. 
I, I was psychic. I answered your question before you asked it. That's you, great. You did. So, um, so this has been a wonderful interview. Do you have any, any closing thoughts? Well, I hope all the listeners will head over to incited. What was it? Dot org, right? Dot org. Yes. I N C I T E D and reserve a copy of the book, $25 contribution. Uh-huh. And they'll be glad they did. Yes. In fact, I will, as I, as I said, the next day or two, the article will be up. There will be a link to incited.org. People can get there, um, buy a copy or three or ten of the book and support the future of math. I think that is really right. cool. I am very, very excited to to read the book. I just, as you know, I just... Um, got the draft copy from you this afternoon. I was running around doing stuff, so I didn't even have a chance to more than than skim the book. But I am very excited to read it. Very excited to go and interview a bunch of the people in your book because I've got um, I've got a lot of enthusiasm for these podcasts. I've I've gone in waves of you know doing one every two or three months, but now I think this month you're like the third or fourth than I am doing. So I'm, I'm on a roll and I want to interview more people and in my own way, get the word out that, that math really can be a heck of a lot of fun. That's fabulous. Thank you so much, Saul. Okay. Thank you, Sue. So there you have it, folks. Sue Van Haddam, inspired by math.